Hello, everyone, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Moeller. And we are here with Lydia Wilton. Thank you so much for being here, Lydia. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to talk to you. Can you tell us what you do, what your program is, and what you study? Just very general overview to start. So I'm a third year PhD candidate in musicology at Western in the Faculty of Music, and my research is in record production, music production. I make recordings and make records of choirs and punk bands and other fun things. So, wow, musicology, that's a that's a $100 word. What exactly is musicology? I know what music is and ology is the study of something, so can you break it down for us even more? Absolutely. So musicology is a really broad area of study on purpose. It's basically the study of how music interacts with other things. So how music as a discipline helps us understand both, you know, music mathematically, what are notes, how does that work, what is sound, how does that work, but also what is music culture? So what are people? Why is that important? How do we feel our feelings? How do we tell musical stories? That's really cool. Do you have a specific genre that you study in particular, or is it the whole, the whole thing, all records? <laughs> I'm mainly in what they would call popular music. So most which where a lot of recorded music, probably the most recorded music is, is in popular music. Um, so I make everything from, yeah, punk records, folk records. I've done a bunch of musical theater. I'm working on a glam rock album, like pop music. That's all covered under the popular music sphere. Um, but record production and music production also does apply to classical music. And I do some classical recording as well. They're just kind of different styles with their own homes. And so you've kind of alluded to this, but you, you make your own music and you've done quite a few records. Um, do you have a favorite genre and why? I end up doing a lot of work in rock. That's probably, it's probably my favorite place. I love blues-based rock, spend a lot of time doing uh, modal music and things like that. Um, but I really, I'm enjoying branching out the more that I do this research and working on other things. Um, there's, a, there's a few parts of classical engineering, that the way we record classical music that's stylistically very different from rock music and popular music. Um, and at the risk of being a massive nerd, I think it's really beautiful. And I'm really enjoying working on more of that lately. Um, but my home is in rock. I have a couple of big rock records I'm doing this year. That's really cool. So you, you produce your own records and you also study it. You're doing a PhD. So how do those two things overlap? Is it just kind of like a love of music in general? Like what, what do you do for study? And then what do you do for fun? Like how, how do those intersect in your life? See, this is perfect because I'm writing my dissertation proposal right now. So you ask and I just, oh, we're here. I'm doing the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I'm borrowing, I'm going to use a metaphor here that's actually from my supervisor, who is a mastering engineer and record producer, which is another fancy phase of the recording process. Um, and he talks about how the field of musicology and the, the academics of music production, basically studying this as a research field. If we compare it to photography, let's say, we have a really good research understanding of how models pose in front of the camera. And we've got a really good understanding of how the history of photography is intertwined with the history of camera technology. And we've got a really good general understanding of the fact that photographers are very important in photography. 
And we've got a whole bunch of interviews with a lot of photographers and a lot of fans of photography interviewing photographers. And we've broadly established that photography belongs in the world of visual art. But we don't really have a consensus on what the art of photographing a photographer's research account of what it means to use a camera to capture a photograph for visual art purposes, we don't really see that reflected in the research. So we're almost missing this, this sort of core, this experiential relational core of what it means to do the art of photography, which in this case is music production, is making records and producing records. So my research is in research creation, which means that methodologically, I do a bunch of art under very strict research circumstances. And then we mine that for understanding about the craft and the art of record production. So my dissertation is I'm working right now on proposing the outline of this next big record that I'm doing, which was with a, a rock band that I've produced another record of theirs previously. And all of my chapters are dedicated to the phases of that process and the embodied knowledge that I'm using and the knowledge of my craft. And the hope is that though this is just about little of me and, you know, Southwestern Ontario doing this record, the things we learn about what record production means, what it means to do this, how this affects our understanding of music and how it affects our understanding of sound, those are universal principles that we should be able to apply to all sorts of other records and all sorts of other producers. So I'm going really small doing case studies of my own work as I do it, as a professional does it, and that has research utility for understanding and building a language of how people do this job and do this work. That's really interesting. So I have two, two questions. So you're using the term record, but I'm guessing you mean, you know, broader than just actual records, like any kind of digital album. Would that be correct? It's a funny one. You're picking on one of my favorite neuroses well, of I the literature. Analysis, so I pick on language. So we'll get along just great. <laughs> yes. Okay. So when we're talking about record production, I love this. We're, we're saying music production is what we mean, because the word record etymologically is just, you know, a, a recording, an object fixed form of something. But the music industry is responsible for the vast majority of sound recording that is done. So colloquially, the music record industry has appropriated this term so that when we say record production or record producing, we're implying musical record production and musical record producing. And that's the reason that, you know, scientists in the Arctic who are recording the icebergs don't call themselves record producers. So we use them kind of interchangeably in the industry. Um, it's come up a little bit in my research is obviously a female producer that sometimes the rules are a little bit different for me. I think there's a lot of technical, how do I want to put this? This is a very artistic industry, but there's a lot of men who work here. Female record producers are estimated to be two or 3%. So because we have these really rigid male gender roles, there's a lot of fixation on the technical engineering sort of like mechanic side of things as opposed to like the emotional artistic fluffy side of things and i think the reason that we default to talking about record production and engineering instead of like music production and song making is because those are more technical words that's really cool i've never thought about it like that and that's so can you tell us 
a bit what it's like to be a woman in the industry. Like two to three percent is such a, a low minority. What what has your experience been? Has it been good? Has it been bad? Do you see places you want to see change? Tell us about that. Absolutely, I would like to see change. Um, it's not just when we're talking about record production. The word can mean a couple of things. It's just your word nerding here. When we talk about production, that can just mean the general making. So just the making of recorded music. There's many discrete phases and specialties and expertises that go within that. And then there's record producing, which is a particular leadership role over the whole production process that is one of those particular specialties and jobs. Some of the specialties within production, for instance, record engineering, the person who knows how to deal with cycloacoustics and place microphones, that's getting so much better for female representation. A lot of the efforts to increase women in STEM and science and technology have brought in a lot of female audio engineers. That's been really cool. So it's now like 20 to 30 percent of recording engineers and live sound engineers are becoming women, which is amazing. It's getting close to parity. Then on the other side of it, you have record producing, which because it's a leadership role, that's where the awful statistic of, you know, two to 3% of women comes from. So in my experience, sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. I've worked with some acts who couldn't have cared less what my gender was, don't really acknowledge it. They're just here for your experience, here for, you know, cause you're the person that's available to them for whatever reason. Um, I've definitely not gotten jobs because of the gendered issue. I've also had records that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been a woman. Um, female artists in particular say that they, per, the, the ones I've worked with anyway, that small sample, uh, say that they prefer to work with female producers because they feel they have more of a voice in the studio because it's less of you know a technical male leadership figure sort of lording over their vision. Um, it just kind of depends. I've had bad experiences that, you know, like unfortunately most women in male dominated fields, I think have had, but I've also had really lovely experiences and I've had extraordinary mentors that I wouldn't be here without of all genders who have opened the door for me. And my hope is that it gets better because it seems to be getting better. I think as much as we worry about gender parity and music recording and music production, we also really should be worried about racial disparities too because you know, for the 2% of women that are here, most of us are white. So that, that's another thing that we're looking at and trying to improve. Um, and it brings, me, it brings me hope that most of the gendered initiatives that are trying to make the industry more inclusive seem to be clued into that and are trying to make it more intersectionally inclusive. Yeah, I, I, that's, I think really, um really important, especially as we think about uh, representation in, in art and music. And I, I wanted to go back to something uh, that you said, and I'm curious how you define embodied knowledges. You, you mentioned it uh, a little while ago, and I'm just curious, what does that mean for you or how do you define it? I agree with a couple researchers who themselves are music producers that Producers ultimately are perceivers is the word that they use. So our job is leadership over the recording process, but we are not the artist. Our job is to use our bodies as a proxy for the listener. So to sit in and listen and know enough about everybody else's job, be that the engineer with the mic or the mastering engineer who's preparing the tracks for release or the artists themselves and their artistic vision, the audience member who's gonna receive this. 
our job is to use our bodies to listen and go, what changes would I make? How do I, how do I feel? What's the discrepancy between that and how I want other people to feel? What can we reasonably do to affect that to change how people are feeling? So it's a very intimate job to do. Um, and you have to be comfortable with using your feelings and your empathy. And it, I find myself like after long sessions, sometimes feeling really like touched out in a visceral way because you're just so on the entire time listening actively to things. Um, and it means that you start to recognize and become very in tune. Like I think most musical professionals are with how sound resonates in your body and what that means for the quality and the emotional effect of the sound. So that you're not having to sit and listen the entire time and go, well, this particular sound is coming out and there's too much information in this particular area of high pitch. So I think that we should, like, it, you're not going through that granular of a process. You're just listening to it going, this is a little harsh. And I know from my experience that in this genre, listeners tend to like this genre not to be very harsh. They like it to be smooth. So that means we need to go in and we need to take down this part at this pitch so that it's less harsh. And that's the kind of thing that over time just becomes this embodied knowledge that you don't even have to think about. You're just listening to something and going, ah, we need to tweak this that way. I know what that means. Ah, this thing needs to be adjusted. That's what we need to do. And it goes as far back as when an artist brings you a song you start to develop knowledge. So they play you the demo and you're trying to figure out how are we recording this? You develop a sense for that's the microphone that I'm going to need because I want it to sound this way when it gets to this place. And yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, that's that's a really um, interesting concept because it sounds to me like what you're saying is there's sort of this tacit form of knowledge that perhaps isn't something that we can always articulate and it's not found in books it's just something that that's felt and understood that's part of the challenge of this research um, because especially the way that music producing is taught is very like trade oriented so the advent of you know recording schools where you go to a classroom and have somebody lecture you about why different sounds produce different feelings in the body because of psychoacoustics that's very new and the way that this was taught for decades for most of popular music, which is most of the modern recording industry, you would start in a studio getting tea. And if you were good at getting tea, they would let you come in and sit and observe a session. And that was how you learned. And then once you started to learn and observe and you'd been there for a while, you proved you could be silent, not irritate the artist while you were there. It's Christmas day and the engineer doesn't want to come in. So then they'll let you try to engineer and see if you can play, play some mic appropriately and see it. And that's how people would work their way up through this studio system. So when all of this knowledge is taught just by observing and doing, you're not necessarily equipped with the language from the beginning. It's all just this very embodied thing that you have to recognize and replicate from other people doing it. And you understand how it works because you hear the difference, but you can't always articulate that that's how you hear the difference. So it's been interesting for me coming through academia where everything's about language and how do we articulate this and how do we name this to try and encode some of those experiences linguistically and have it be faithful to the practice. That is incredible. I do not think I could do that. <laughs> it sounds like you have, like it's it's such a big talent to be able to do that, like to hear what the artist wants and, and make that into something. I wanna go back to one, one another $100 term that you used earlier, Psychoacoustics, what, what does that mean? Like, is there, 
like you said, different sounds make you feel differently, but I wonder if you can go into that a bit more because I guess I know how I feel when I listen to music, but I didn't realize it was something that people knew about and they manipulated that or used that as a certain thing. Can you go into that a bit more? Oh, you're just getting like my favorite nerd spots right now. So the, like, the preface I use to say this, to talk about psychoacoustics, is human beings are wild, man. We're such, we're such cool biological machines and we're designed in such an ersatz way that is so engineered for survival that we're just learning about now. So for example, the human brain pro and the human ear processes sound from about 20 Hertz, which is a type of vibration of sound wave to about 20,000 Hertz. So 20 to 20,000. And you'll often hear people frame that as 20 to 20 K as in 20 to 20,000 Hertz. Within that range of human hearing is our entire spectrum of pitch. So from like the lowest rumble of a bus to the highest like wind in the leaves. But we don't hear all of those pitches equally at all. So frequencies that are around six to 8,000 Hertz, we are incredibly sensitive to, very sensitive to. So that's the kind of thing when you're recording, you have to take that out a lot. The reason we're sensitive to that range of frequencies is because it's both the edge of consonants in a lot of languages. So which is this important part of just, you know, what syllable is that? What is the meaning? But that's also the frequency of a twig snapping under a predator's foot in the forest that you need to be able to hear. <laughs> so things like around 16, 17 Hertz, all the way down, very, very low. That's below the range of human hearing. So we can feel it in our bodies, but we can't actually hear and process it with our ears. It makes people incredibly uncomfortable. And it's a huge part of a lot of horror movie soundtracks because that is the resonant frequency of your eyeball. So if you put that into a soundtrack, it vibrates people's eyes, which are very sensitive, important for your survival. So it won't hurt you, but your lizard brain doesn't know that. It just knows that something is vibrating weirdly with your eye and I'm unsettled and I don't like it. And it, those are psychoacoustics, the principles of how sound bouncing around in space, creating a certain size and a certain character of waveform within the range of human hearing affects our behavior and affects how we feel because of our biological structure, because of what we survived and how we've evolved. And you have to know those things when you're making music, because if you deliver people tracks that have huge humps at 16 to 17 hertz, doesn't matter how good the song is, everyone's deeply unsettled. And <laughs> If you deliver something that's got a lot, you know, in six to eight hertz, people can't identify why it's just ice picky and standing out so much to them. And that's why. That's really interesting about like pitch and thinking about um, how we perceive pitch. So this might be a little bit out of your scope, but I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw it out there. Right on. Is there, is, are there pitches that are so high or so low that we don't hear, but other species hear? Because you kind of hear that talked about, but I've, I've never really known if it's true. You absolutely do. So the human hearing range, 20 to 20K, is pitifully small <laughs> for most animals on the planet. And it's because of the way we hear and the wiring of our brains that we kind of concentrate on this range. But we are much more dependent on our other senses, especially our sight than necessarily our hearing, which is why it's not as developed. Dogs can hear 
beyond so much higher so much like you've heard of dog whistles which you use for your dog at the dog park and you can't hear them but your dog can that's because it's way beyond 20k it's way beyond our human hearing i mean all of the recording engineers and producers that i know we're all meticulous about our hearing and it's like a challenge and a point of pride if you can still hear up even to 20k because as you age and the ear gets less sensitive and you incur damage just from you know walking by construction sites and going to concerts and things like that most adults can't hear beyond kind of maybe 16k 17k at a certain point in their lives but you still feel it you still notice it you'd when you blow your dog whistle if it's in a small enough space you still feel a disturbance in the force if that makes sense so we need to be able to deal with those frequencies in our recordings and it's a point of pride of trying to like sharpen your ears as much as you can maintain them as much as you can to be able to hold on to that limited range there a way to improve your hearing like is it just protecting those hair cells in your ears making sure that they're okay or is there like do you notice that producers get like better and sharper ears over time you totally develop a spidey sense and we (laughs) i was told this in my training um that it will training and music production ruins the way that you listen it will ruin your enjoyment for a lot of things you previously enjoyed because it's almost like developing a different mode of hearing, if that makes sense. And if you spend too much time in like your work mode and getting very sensitive to these things you're listening for, it can be really hard to jump out again. Um, So the things that we do is you do a lot of training of listening to other people's music so that you can understand what it is that you're looking for, how the different tools work. You spend a lot of time listening to the raw tracks coming through different microphones because microphones are objectively terrible listeners. So you have to learn how they listen so that you can understand how to apply and weaponize them. Um, And then we spend a lot of time, again, more sort of embodied knowledge, getting really clear with when your ears are tired so you can take breaks because the human ear is resilient. You can be exposed to loud sounds if it's not for too long. You can be exposed to really complex sounds if you're not overthinking it for too long. And learning how to take breaks and get more sensitive so you can work at lower volumes, i.e. for longer times, are part of the skill sets that we develop. It makes you incredibly fun at parties, as I don't go anywhere without earplugs now, (laughs) because we're all just ruthlessly protecting our hearing everywhere we go. Um, But it, I don't know, I enjoy the spidey sense. I enjoy the work mode listening and the being extra sensitive, because if you love music, it it feels like you get to go behind the curtain a little bit to be able to start hearing these things, even if it means that you can't listen to something, you know, zoned out the same way anymore, but it's nice. And, you know, I, I dabble a little bit in, okay. in, in music. Do you have a favorite recording software that you use? I'm, I'm a fan of Audacity, but do you have one that's really worked well for you? If you make Audacity work for you, more power to you. That is a that is a frustrating design. That it is, but it's free. <laughs> yeah. I'm a I'm a Logic Pro X user. Um, I I also know my way around Pro Tools, but uh, at the risk of saying something completely blasphemous, that company does not treat their users particularly well. So it's a brilliant piece of software industry standard, can use it, do use it. It's not my favorite just because of dealing with the parent company. Um, I love Logic Pro X, which is has its own quirks, but is similarly designed, is beautiful. That's an Apple product. Um, so if you're an Apple producer, it comes with a lot of your stuff and their loops are excellent, are great, lovely. Lots of like pre-recorded samples that you can put in your own music. Um, GarageBand 
is supposed to be like a consumer program. It's kind of just the guts of Logic Pro X delivered on Apple computers. It's a great little program. I love GarageBand. Um, and a bunch of my uh, friends who work in electronic music use Ableton, which is a great DAW as well. It's, sorry, so I'm using $100 words here. DAW stands for Digital Audio Workstation. So when all the tracks pop up on your computer and you can affect all the things, it's the software we're talking about. Turn it a little bit more personal. How did you get into music? Have you always loved it? Has it been a new thing as you get older? How has your love for music changed as you got more into your career? Ooh, so I, I am an artist with a capital A. So started uh, as, that's how I ended up actually in the faculty of music at Western. I've, I'm one of those people that's done all three degrees at one school. So I actually started here because Western is the only popular music undergrad program in the country. Um, so I started as a wee beb, writing my own songs and playing in terrible they weren't that terrible teenage bands and things like that and uh, came into western as a guitar player a vocalist and a songwriter for the popular music program um and then once i was here the the popular music program is a little bit of a choose your own adventure where they expose you to as many facets of the industry as they can and then the onus is on you to decide what you're interested in and what you're going to pursue and we spent enough time doing recording that it just fascinated me because i mean it, as a 19 year old female artist, it's very easy to get passed over by, especially in rock, by older men who, you know, have listened to more Def Leppard deep cuts than you and have stronger opinions than you. Um, and learning about recording first seemed like an empowering thing to do. So if I knew more tools, knew my way around the studio, then I could make more of my own decisions. Um, but it turned into really uncovering what I think is the most misunderstood part of record production, which is that making records is not just capturing something that already exists, we're actually creating an entirely new work of art. So the, if you think of any of your favorite albums that you listen to, you don't, you don't ever expect them to sound exactly like that on the stage in front of you. You know what I mean? They're their own piece of art that exists in sort of this magical headspace and world inside your brain between your ears. And that was just wild to me that there were people that just made that. And as an artist and as a songwriter, it seemed like this wonderful possibility that you could come up with a composition and it could live in two ways. It could live, you know, ephemerally on a stage where it's it's hinged to time and once you've played it, it's gone. But it could also live in this fixed format that wouldn't have the same flow through time, but you could perfect it and create it in this sort of non-existent world that people listen to and could revisit. So I completely fell in love with it and started first it was, you know, making records for the bands that I was playing in with other musicians in the popular music program and then I stuck around for a master's degree and started thinking about the music of other artists and how there are some producers who don't even work on their own music, they just work with other people. And that turned into the full PhD where my career both kind of within and outside the research is working on my own stuff as much as other bands records right now. That's great. You're doing such a cool thing. I have learned so much from listening to you and so before we go, before we end this, Lydia, do you have any social media that people can find you? Do you have any 
uh, websites where people can listen to these amazing records that you're making? Where, where can they go to see you? Oh, sure. So my, my personal social media is mostly just like shots of running around with headphones. They can follow that if they want to. That's at Lydia the Claire on everything. L-Y-D-I-A-T-H-E-C-L-A-I-R-E. Um, the band that I work with the most as an artist, and I just produced their record that came out this past summer, um, is called Nameless Friends, and same thing, found on everything as N-A-M-E-L-E-S-S-F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Um, one of the records I'm really excited about I'm working on this year is producing for a local London band called Older Siblings, which also just older siblings on everything, O-L-D-E-R-S-I-B-L-I-N-G-S. I think on Instagram, they're older sibs is the distinction. Um, and yeah, the, those are the ones I'm working on and thinking about off the top of my head. Support local music, listen to cool records. Thank you so much, Lydia. Uh, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson, and my co-host was Elizabeth Fuller. And we've been speaking with Lydia Wilton. And this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. And you can find all of our episodes wherever you find your lovely podcast. Thank you so much for listening and have a great night.